it's a joy to minister to you this morning through God's Word. Will you open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 4? This is my very first time ever speaking here at the Master's University. I spoke at some obsolete institution uh, several times called the Master's College, but the old has passed and the new has come. So with that in mind, Hebrews chapter 4 is our text this morning. Verse 14 through 16. Let me read it to you. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Occupational obsolescence is a fancy little term that talks about the advancements in technology and how experts for centuries have speculated that machines might actually take over humans' jobs. Derek Thompson, writing for The Atlantic in an article entitled A World Without Work, writes about this ob occupational obsolescence. And he wonders if that moment might be arriving now. He says, when they look up from their spreadsheets, they see automation high and low, robots in the operating room and behind the fast food counter. They imagine self-driving cars snaking through the streets and Amazon drones dotting the sky, replacing millions of drivers, warehouse stockers, and retail workers. They observe that the capabilities of machines already formidable continue to expand exponentially while our own remain the same. And they wonder, is any job safe? Occupational obsolescence was forecasted in 2013 by researchers at the Oxford University uh, that machines might be able to perform half of all U.S. jobs in the next two decades. If you wonder about the reality of occupational obsolescence, you simply need to ask any horse. Yep, I said horse. Horses used to be a big deal, a really big deal. I'm on the farm, you needed a horse. Now, you've got tractors. Uh, to get from one place to another, a horse would really help you get there faster until the automobile. And horses were the army's superior in war until tanks and fighter jets. You understand this because there's no more telegraph operators, occupational obsolescence. There's no more switchboard operators, no more stagecoach drivers. And there used to be a thing called a milkman. Can you believe that? Today he would be the almond milkman, <laughs> whatever that is. Al almonds are not mammals, my friends. What? 
what meaneth this? <laughs> we all understand that, that these advances have uh, caused us to see examples of occupational obsolescence, but the ultimate example of something being rendered obsolete, of a job being no longer necessary and no longer valid, is in the text we just read, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. This is a text that talks about uh, the high priestly ministry, uh, a ministry that was instituted by God himself in ancient Israel, uh, a way for his people to have access to him, a way for them to offer necessary sacrifices established by God himself through that priestly line of Aaron, uh, instituted by God specifically to his design. Even the clothing that that high priest wore was prescribed in the way God demanded his people to worship him. And the place of worship was equally exquisitely detailed. And the, the methods of worship, the rituals, the feasts, the offerings, every one of them intricately described by God. And they had learned throughout their history of disobedience what would happen if they would approach these sacrifices in a crass or cavalier way. And they had learned by way of dangerous example what happened when anyone but the high priest of Israel attempted to offer sacrifices between man and and God. It was that high priestly ministry that was on the minds of the original recipients of this letter. You see, they were newly converted to Christ, formerly Jewish background believers, and they had come to faith in this Jesus, the Messiah, and they had immediately tasted the difficulties of their newfound faith. Uh, they were excited because this was the culmination, they understood, of God's outworking, his plan in uh, their scriptures. And now their families had turned on them. The society had rejected them. According to the epistle to the Hebrews, their goods were being confiscated. And some of them were even being put in prison. The threat of death was imminent. And they'd become concerned and so putting together their newly understood Trinitarian theology, they said, since Jesus is God and God is, is Jesus in some sense, why can't we just go back to our former manner of life? They were now ostracized from the synagogue, rejected by their families. The costs were so high. Many of them were on the brink of recapitulation, thinking about going back to their former manner of life. And so this pastor, with great concern, pens them a forceful letter full of warnings that they should not return to their former manner of life, but they must press on because of the simple message of the epistle to the Hebrews, summarized in three words, Jesus is better. He's better. And he goes through in this letter trying to prove that to them, helping them understand that Jesus is the fullness of God's revelation, that in the past God spoke through prophets and, and visions, and now God has spoken fully and finally through his own Son, no longer prophet-wise, but Son-wise, this full, radiant expression of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the one who sustains all things by his powerful word is the full revelation of God. It's Jesus. 
And whatever celestial beings were held in high esteem in their society, Jesus is the creator of all the angels, he tells them. So Christ is superior to the angels. He teaches them that Jesus is better, better than the old system, better than the old temple, better than the old sacrifices, better than even their revered prophet Moses, better than the angels. His rest is better than the rest that Joshua promised to lead the people into. And to forsake Jesus, is to return to their former manner of life is to commit a fatal mistake. And for us, this letter's a long way off from our experience, I think. Because we don't have a, a priestly system that we're familiar with. Unless maybe you come from a Roman Catholic background, you probably didn't grow up with a priest. And not very many of you are considering a return to Judaism. But every one of us has a former manner of life. Before you were a Christian, you were a slave to your sin. And whatever systems of worship you ascribe to, whatever religious system that was not centered around God's own Son, has a beckoning call to your flesh. And the reason this text is important for you this morning, students at the Master's University, is because what's essential in your life this morning and essential in every life that this letter was originally addressed to is your need for perseverance. You must continue in your faith. To not continue and to drift away as he talks about in the second chapter proves to be fatal every time. And so in this little portrait of what Jesus' great high priestly ministry looks like, we see the key to Christian perseverance, the key to pressing on in your faith, the key to enduring. And you all understand the need for endurance, especially those of you who were at Wow Week just a, a few days ago. You thought, for just a moment, you thought that going to the Master's University was going to be like Wow Week face paint, maddening midnight raids, fun, free stuff, and then you stepped into class and you were handed a covenant called a syllabus <laughs> by a professor who believes that his class is the only class that you're taking. <laughs> And then the illusion of an easy and fun college experience evaporated. And you realized you got to persevere. you got to finish this thing. Well, the Christian life is, is likewise, except it doesn't last four years or five years like college does. The Christian life is a lifetime of one foot in front of the other as a disciple of Jesus. And the key to perseverance is to fix your eyes on him. A phrase that the author of Hebrews loves to use. To consider Jesus, to fix your eyes on Jesus. And in this paragraph, he begins to unfold a description of Jesus' high priestly ministry through all the various facets uh, that he looks at theologically and practically. How it benefits us as Christians. He starts in, in this verse, in verse 14, and carries this argument all the way through chapter 10. But this morning, I just want to look at these two verses and focus on Jesus, our great high priest, in, in two capacities, two simple capacities. First of all, let me show you his infinite supremacy, his infinite supremacy. 
in order for us to persevere in our faith, in order for us to seek God in prayer and continue on after Jesus in this Christian race, we must see Jesus first off in his infinite supremacy. Look at verse 14. It starts with the word since then, or maybe your Bible says therefore. That connects you to what has preceded, not just the arguments about Jesus being superior and his unequaled greatness, but the verses that just came before, familiar verses to students at at a college where the Bible is taken seriously. Look at verse 12. The Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Word of God, an object of your interest, each one of you, as you study the Bible in this school, you know so much about it. You've thought and and considered and written papers and heard lectures and chapel three times a week. You have been at this school studying the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says, all the while, the Bible, like an ominous sword, sharp as a scalpel, has been studying you, examining you. Dividing your thoughts and intentions, things that you don't even understand about why you do what you do, God's Spirit knows. And His Word has been exposing. His Word has been cutting. His Word has been working on you. These are ominous verses. Look at 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and stripped bare before the eyes of whom we must give an account. Instead of 412 being a cute kind of a wanna verse that you memorized when you were a kid, the Word of God's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Neat swords. Swords are deadly. If somebody came into chapel with a sword, we would all go Shekinah glory. Swords are a weapon. Swords are a threat. Swords are ominous. And the Word of God is like a sword. And he says, since therefore, in verse 14, because of what he said in verses 12 and 13. If you're following the the flow of this letter, you are trembling before the eyes of Him who lays everything bare. He knows you completely. And Luther said, That having wounded us, now He heals us. Having terrified us, now He comforts us by showing us the infinite supremacy of Christ to instill in us perseverance. Where do we see His infinite supremacy? Well, we see it in this first phrase, since then we have a great high priest. That's a Hebraic term. Uh, You see it in the Old Testament when the Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. It's repetition to ensure the superlative nature of something. In the original, this is not great high priest. This is great, great priest or high, high priest. It's a reminder of that one man in Israel who was selected from the priestly class, from the line of Aaron. Just one man was qualified to be the high priest and he alone bore the responsibility to offer that atonement on that special day, Yom Kippur, to enter into the presence of God symbolized by the holy holies and to offer a sacrifice standing in the gap between God 
God and the people. He was the high priest, and there was many of them. Some of them were excellent. All of them were sinful. Some of them were, were morally good. Some of them were, were excellent priests who were genuine in their motives, and some of them were struck dead by God for their sinister motives. But they were all humans, and they were all sinners. But the pastor who wrote this letter says, we have a great high priest. And it reminds us of the superior priesthood of Jesus. This has been his argument from the start, that Jesus is the priest who sat down at the right hand of God, Hebrews 1.3. That Jesus is the priest who is merciful and faithful, 2.17. That he suffered when he was tempted and he's able to help those who are being tempted. That he's the kind of priest in chapter 3, verse 1, who is the one we confess, a heavenly calling we share, who is faithful, even more faithful than Moses. This great high priest is superior in his priesthood. The old priests would follow the rituals precisely, wearing clothes exactly as God prescribed. They put on a thing called an ephod, kind of a holy apron, before they would go and offer into the temple. And on that ephod was 12 stones, three across, four down, each one representing one of the tribes of Israel. And on the shoulder plates of that ephod, there was two black onyx stone, and a skilled worker would inscribe in ephod each stone, six names, six of the sons uh, of Israel on one shoulder, six of the sons of Israel on the other shoulder. And, and this priest wearing this garb with the priestly instruments would enter in to offer the sacrifices, bearing on his body an awareness that he had to sacrifice for himself before he ever entered into the holy place to sacrifice for others. And to remind him of his representative nature, he wore these stones on his ephod with the names of his people, the names of his fellow brothers and sisters in Israel. Jesus is a superior priest. He's a greater great high priest because he did not wear the priestly garb. In fact, chapter 7 says that he wasn't even qualified to do so. He wasn't from the tribe of Aaron. He wasn't an Aaronic uh, lineage. He was from the tribe of Judah. He couldn't enter into that temple system. He wasn't qualified. He was a layman. But instead, he hung naked on a cross for his sacrifice. And on his heart, he didn't bear 12 stones. He bore the name of every single one who would ever trust in him. Jesus died for the sins of sinners, of mankind. And he functioned there as an atoning high priest in our place. That's just a taste of the superiority of his priesthood. It goes on to say he passed through the heavens. Well, you know those old high priests and that day of atonement would enter into the outer court, a place for all of Israel. And then on that prescribed day, they would enter through a portal spatially from the outer court into the inner court. And then on the day of atonement, they would enter to offer that sacrifice into the very symbolic presence of God, the Holy of Holies. A place that they would enter with great care and fear, trepidation, not casually. Certainly they would never sit down in there. They would offer the offering exactly as God prescribed. In that room would be a lampstand. But in that room at the center would be the Ark of the Covenant, the most important piece of furniture in the universe. 
And inside of it were a copy of the Ten Commandments to remind them that God revealed himself to his people. Next to that was a bowl of manna to remind them of the greatest incidents of salvation God had ever worked among his people, leading them out of Egypt and saving them, providing for them. On the lid of that, the altar, there was two angelic figures, their wings coming up. And he would enter well aware that he was sinful and God is holy. And he would quickly go about his work and then he would leave that space mindful of the inappropriateness of a sinner in the presence of God. Mindful of the need of blood, of sacrifice for sin. Mindful of the shortfallings. Mindful of how many priests had entered before generation after generation after generation for centuries. But now this great high priest who is a superior priest shows that that he accomplished a superior accomplishment because it says he had passed through the heavens. Not the outer court to the inner court to the holy of holies. Instead, Jesus went through the air into the heavens, and into the very presence of God. Not the symbolic presence in the tabernacle or in the temple, but into the very actual presence of God, the throne room of God on high. After Jesus died on the cross for the sins of mankind and rose from the grave, God vindicating all his claims, he walked with his disciples and taught them, and then he ascended into heaven before their very eyes, reminding them that he would come back in like manner. And that ascension led to his enthronement. And this is why his priesthood is superior, and this is why his accomplishment is superior, because he did not merely go to be in a symbolic place, in a temporary way, on behalf of God's people. He entered into the very presence of God and was welcomed there because his sacrifice was perfect, it was final, and he was God's own dear son. And he was welcomed into heaven's court because that's where Jesus belongs and he is there now on our behalf as a forerunner Hebrews 6 19 one who goes there so that we will follow him do you see how this is helping these believers think rightly about where Jesus is because they do not see him with their physical eyes like the generation before Sometimes we long for spiritual experiences, snap, crackles, and pop, something visible, some manifestation that God would give us. But we must remember that God has given us His own Son who is present and active and interceding and mediating for you right now, dear Christian. You're familiar with so many Bible stories about Jesus, but are you aware that there is a Bible story happening right now as Jesus prays for you, dear Christian. Right now, on this day, on this year, whatever you're going through, whatever part of your life you're in, Jesus is praying for you. And though you are a Protestant, and though you are quick to say, hey, we don't need a priest, you couldn't be more wrong. You need a priest. And you have a priest. And it is not a mere man. It is Jesus, the Son of God. The phrase he uses next. This is never indiscriminately placed in the Bible. The way Jesus' name is put matters. And here it says Jesus. It's his human name. 
It's the name that, that his parents would call, his mother would call out, Jesus, come home, it's time for dinner or supper, depending on where you're from. Strange Midwestern people. And unlike all the children in Israel and today, when Jesus' mother called him in for dinner, Jesus always came in for dinner. Jesus, his human name, given by an angel because it meant he'll save his people from their sins. Representing his humanity here in this sentence, it speaks of his superior lineage, not of the line of Aaron, but of the kingly tribe of Judah, functioning as a priest because he's of the order of Melchizedek, not from Aaron's line. His priesthood isn't going to end with a generation. It's going to be eternal. He's Jesus, the great high priest. He's also Jesus, the Son of God. This speaks of his superior identity. You see, only a man could stand and represent men. And only God could represent God to the people. And so Jesus, as both God and man, stands in that gap. Jesus, the Son of God. And the author is implicitly saying, do not renounce Him because there is no other way of God. He is fully man. He is fully God. His deity, His eternality, His humanity is not indiscriminate, but it is essential to your perseverance. And so he tells them the first of two commands in this passage, and it's found in verse 14. It says, let us hold firmly or hold fast our confession. An important phrase in the letter to the Hebrews, this idea of a confession. In 3.1, he's called the high priest of our confession. In 10.23, to hold on to their confession is to hold on and persevere in their faith. He tells them to hold fast, to hold firmly, to cling on to, to grasp on to their confession of Christ. And friends, it is not the confession that lies beneath the confession. They're confessing someone. Who is it? Who is it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, the Son of God. The perseverance that Christians need doesn't come from just gritting their teeth, but it comes from recognizing the greatness of the one whom we confess. This is a needful corrective for us when we think about all the help and, and, and tips and tricks that, that were offered to us in our Christian life. The secret to the Christian life is this. The secret to the Christian life is this. The key to the Christian life is Him. It's Jesus Christ. It's holding fast to our confession of Him. He is the centerpiece of the faith that we confess. And so His infinite supremacy is demonstrated through the superiority of His priesthood, through the superiority of His accomplishment, passing through the heavens, through His superior lineage, superior identity. All these things are like angles of a jewel that show us how beautiful Christ is. And call us to hold fast to Him. Because the sustaining power in our faith is found in Him and not in us. Well, there's a second command that this passage urges us to see. Another aspect of Jesus' priestly ministry that helps us persevere. And it's not only His infinite supremacy. It's verses 15 and 16. It's His intimate sympathy. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. If you have ever 
struggled with sin, this verse can help you. If you've ever been overcome with temptation, you need Hebrews 4.15. He puts it in the negative because I think it's our tendency to think of Jesus different than he actually was. He tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. There must have been some people then and I think now who thought we have a high priest who doesn't sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus made of something else than humanity. Jesus floating around with this Superman ability, sinlessness, sets him apart and therefore he doesn't understand what we're going through. It's an old recycled lie you'll hear people tell all the time. Only an alcoholic can really understand an alcoholic. You don't know what I'm going through. You haven't seen what I've seen. And that's a lie. It's a dangerous place to be when you isolate yourself and you tell yourself, nobody gets me. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Because when you do that, you preclude the most important sympathetic person in the universe, and that is Jesus Christ. He says that he knows exactly what you're going through. Now, Jesus didn't live in this century, and he didn't have an iPhone, and he didn't face the difficulties that the modern 20-year-old faces. So in what way is he tempted in every respect? Well, he was tempted in every respect, categorically. Let me explain. All of you have given in to temptation at some point in your life. Sinners by nature and by choice, we all know what it's like to be tempted and to resist and to resist and to resist and in five minutes to give in. Jesus was tempted all the more. You see, he experienced the full range of temptation's power. He knew what it was like to feel the draw of sin, but he never relented to its demands. He never bought into the lie. Whether you want the example of Jesus going toe-to-toe with the enemy in the wilderness, starving for 40 days, being offered all these things by the devil, Jesus resisted him to the uttermost. Or whether you want the darkest night of Jesus' temptation to flee and run out from obedience to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, he refused to do so. And he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He was perfectly obedient, so he experienced the full force of temptation's power. Sometimes we think of Jesus walking around and temptation bouncing off of him like Nerf gun arrows bounce off of me at my house. Do you know how much Nerf gun technology has improved, by the way? I would have been dangerous if they had this when I was a kid. You don't even have to pull the thing anymore. There's batteries and stuff. But we think like that, don't we? I mean, temptation is real to us, isn't it? But was it real to Jesus? This verse says yes. It says yes, and it says he's sympathetic, a word that's used in chapter 10, verse 34, of understanding and feeling pain and empathy for those who were imprisoned. It doesn't mean you have to be in prison to feel sorrow for those who are in prison, to understand what they're going through. You know, there's a musical term. I I took piano lessons in third grade. Uh, Notice I, I didn't say since third grade. And in a great act of parental hypocrisy, my four kids all have to take piano lessons. And I don't let them quit like I did in third grade. 
But there's a term in, in music, and it's found in the Oxford Companion to Classical Music. I'm sure you all have it in your backpack. And in it, it's called sympathetic resonance. It's an acoustical kind of term that if you have a piano with strings, not an evil electric piano like that one, <laughs> but a piano with strings, and if you were to hit that a note on the piano, I could find middle C if you gave me a couple tries. If you strike one note on a piano sitting here, and if there was a piano in that side of the room untouched, the same note would gently respond. It's called sympathetic resonance. See, Jesus has that kind of sympathy with us. Though he is in heaven, and though he never sinned, he knows what you're going through. And when you are tempted, he feels the power of that same temptation because he experienced the full force of temptation's power. In other words, his instrument is like your instrument. He is a real man, a human being. He knows what you're going through. And he has made a way and forged a path of obedience and a path of grace so that when you fall he understands and he can forgive and when you are tempted and when you feel weak and frail he is there and he is praying for you and he knows what you're going through he sympathizes with you he understands you and your battle against temptation's power because he fought it first praise God that he knows what we need and we need a sympathetic high priest and so he gives us a final command let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need i love verse 16 i love the word help he's not going to give you a pointer a shortcut jesus offers you help students the Savior wants to help you. Would you like to receive help from Jesus? I need help. And the help this verse offers has to do with perseverance and its counterpart, which is prayer. The imperative is draw near. Let us then with confidence draw near. Well, where do we go if Jesus is not physically present here? Well, we've learned that he's physically present at God's right hand. So how do we draw near to Jesus when he is in a space and time outside of ours? Physically present, but not in our spatial sphere. How do we draw near to that? How do we take a step to Jesus? How do we walk towards him? How do we approach him? Well, the answer is evident. We draw near to God in prayer. This word is used throughout Hebrews as a synonym for prayer in 725 and in chapter 10 several times. And so he tells us what kind of way we should pray. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And we receive mercy, find grace to help in times of need. You see, his sinlessness is a better accomplishment to be a priest who represents us with temptation's power. Those old priests were sinful. This new priest is sinless. 
And as a human being, he knows the frailties and groanings that beset us. And so, why wouldn't we go to him in prayer? When the delights and joys of sin are are set before us, we should be mindful that Jesus experienced those same delights and those same joys. And Jesus realized that there was attractiveness there and there was pleasure offered there. But he understood the lie that was behind temptation's power and he never surrendered to it. And so he can help us. He can help us when we're tempted and he can help us when we fall. That's why it's called a throne of grace. You see, we didn't need another sinner to sympathize with us. We needed a Savior who will lead us to victory. And that's who Jesus is. And so this verse ends with a a crowning achievement because there's a throne involved. And you know what a throne is for, verse 16. It's a kingly and glorious throne. And on this throne is the Son of God with all ability and power and strength. And it's not just a throne, it's a gracious priestly throne where Jesus, the Son of God, was tempted like we are, is on that throne at God's right hand. And He urges us to hold fast to Him and to draw near to Him. And this should remind us that his throne is accessible to us available to us you each one of you are invited and welcome at Jesus's throne and he will never rest assured he will never grow tired of your requests he will never be annoyed with your presence he lives to pray for you and to be there for you and he wants you to draw near to him to come to him or he would not have invited you he wants you to come over and over and over again and he doesn't need you to be perfect to come he doesn't need you to put on a show he is the perfect one and when you draw near to him you will not find judgment and condemnation you will not find apathy indifference or rejection he will offer you mercy and forgiveness and you will find grace and strength exactly what sinners need he doesn't need rituals or proof or sacrifice or validation he just wants you to draw near to him to come to him to call out to him and he will never cast you out again and again and again and again and again come to him and you will find Christ's pardon and mercy and sympathy and welcome and forgiveness and grace and help don't hide from him Don't shrink away. Don't go back to your former manner of life. He's ready for you to come to Him. There is nothing that you have done that surprises Him. He knows it all. And He knows you need Him. And He knows you'll fail again and sin again. And yet He says, draw near to me. So come boldly to this high priest. Find mercy and get grace. Father, thank you for our great high priest and his matchless ministry to us. God, to know that you have revealed yourself to convince us of the glory of Christ is such condensation from you that you have lowered down to speak to us through your perfect word. 
that we might hold fast our confession, persevering and draw near with confidence in prayer, all rooted and grounded in the truth of who Jesus is. God, thank you for his transcendence to your right hand, for his true humanity, and help us each one to persevere through trials and receive his help through prayer, to understand who he truly is, our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God.